0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called No More, Many Disciples Deserted Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August twenty-third, two 2009. Sometime during my high school years, my father stopped attending church. He never explained why, and I never asked. To make matters worse, since my mother never learned how to drive, every Sunday my father still dropped us off and picked us up at our small town Presbyterian church in North Carolina. I still remember how awkward that felt as a teenager, Dad waiting at the curb for us in his car, seeing and being seen by our neighbors with whom he used to worship. Those of us submerged in our Christian subcultures, Bible studies, liturgies, denominational meetings, mission projects, youth groups, summer camps, Christian secondary schools and colleges. We Christians might raise our eyebrows about church dropouts, but that attitude risks self-righteous sanctimony. In our enthusiasm to commend the gospel, we can often soften its hard edges, domesticate its subversive message, minimize its mystery, and repress uncomfortable questions. In his book, What Jesus Meant, Gary Wills writes that Jesus is always more outrageous and more egregious than we ever expected. If scholars found the so-called true and original Jesus behind the gospel text, says Wills, he would appear more rather than less incomprehensible to us. Which is to say, there are in fact good reasons for leaving church. John's gospel provides a case in point. After recounting Jesus' enigmatic promise that whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, John includes a detail that lends authenticity to his account. We read, Jesus said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's as if John couldn't forget the memory of the offense that Jesus provoked that day. In a candid protest to Jesus' strange discourse, some of his disciples, those who were closest to his purpose and mission, complained. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Maybe they knew exactly what Jesus meant and took offense. Or maybe they were clueless and had no idea what he meant. Those who were scandalized at the message then cashed in their chips we read in John 6:66, 6, From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Quitting the journey with Jesus is always a distinct option. The hard sayings of the enigmatic Jesus are only one reason why some people quit the faith. I suspect that my father lost faith in the church as an institution. Others quit or never start in the first place because right-wing conservatives contort the gospel into a Republican agenda, while radical liberals drain the good news of almost any specificity. Still others leave church because of boredom, legalistic pettiness, superficial platitudes, unanswered prayers, bitter disappointments, intellectual doubts, nagging questions, or traumas that crush the spirit. In her memoir, Leaving Church (2006), Barbara Brown Taylor seems to have left church precisely in order to save her faith. In his emotionally volatile poem called The Collar, the pastor and poet George Herbert, 1593-1633, considered quitting faith in the ministry. Born to wealth and privilege, Herbert forsook a faculty post at Cambridge University in public service as a member of Parliament. In 1629, he became the rector at Bemerton, a small village near Salisbury. There he spent the rest of his very short life as a country cleric. One month before his 40th birthday, he he died of tuberculosis. The title of Herbert's poem, The Collar, evokes the stiff clerical collar that he wore. He complains that it's choking the life out of him. He begins his tirade by pounding the church altar, called the board, on which he would have served the Eucharist, in screaming what many a pastor and believer has felt but dared not express, no more, I quit. Listen to George Herbert's poem, The Collar. I struck the board and cried, no more, I will abroad. What? Shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines in life are free, free as the road, Loose as the wind, as large as stone. Shall I be still in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me bleed and not restore what I've lost with cordial fruit? Sure there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it? No flowers, no garlands gay? All blasted, all wasted? Not so, my heart, but there is fruit, and thou hast hands. Recover all thy sigh-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not. Forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made, and made to thee good cable, to enforce and draw and be thy law, while thou didst wink and wouldst not see. Away, take heed, I will abroad. Call in thy death's head there, tie up thy fears. He that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. But as I raved and grew more fierce and wild, At every word, methoughts, I heard one calling, Child, and I replied, My Lord. Herbert's poem is full of images of constraint Against which he rebels. His clerical collar, cables, a cage, Ropes, laws, and his stuffy suit. He chafes at the conformity imposed upon him, he dreams about a life free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. Why not flee? He grouses that his only reward for ministerial service is a harvest of thorns, and he wonders whether he's wasted his years. Did he miss out on life and ambition? He regrets the pleasures and privileges he forfeited. Maybe he should never have left Cambridge in London, for Bemerton. But in the end, Herbert comes full circle. He concludes that the real ropes, cages, and cables that bind him are not the gospel or ministerial service, but his own petty thoughts. In fact, the more fierce and wild he raved, the more in his heart of hearts he heard one calling, Child! And so the poem ends with a robust recommitment of faith to my Lord. Some interpreters detect a note of self-pity in Herbert's poem, or even deliberate exaggeration for rhetorical effect. I like to read his poem at face value as a refreshingly candid expression of the deeply human questions that normal people ask on the journey with Jesus. Authentic spirituality includes, rather than excludes, whatever is bothering you most. In his interior dialogue with himself, I imagine George Herbert weighing the words of Jesus from John's Gospel in John 6.67. Do you want to leave too? We don't need to solve every problem or answer every question to stay in the faith. We can let the hard sayings of Jesus stand without softening them, or perhaps even understanding them. We can acknowledge with John Calvin that the church swarms with many faults, and yet still be, as the Benedictine nun Joan Chittister put it, a loyal member of a dysfunctional family. Trusting in God's providential call upon our lives, we can follow George Herbert's advice to leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not the two psalmists for this week remind us God is close to the broken-hearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit, and that what we need most of all is to keep our quote, hearts on pilgrimage psalm eighty four Verse 5. Contemplate Peter's words in John 6:68. 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Consider the words of Erasmus: I will put up with this church until it becomes a better church, and it must put up with me until I become a better Christian." And for further reading, see Philip Yancey, Church, Why Bother, 1998, Soul Survivor, How My Faith Survived the Church, 2001, Gary Wills, Why I Am a Catholic, 2002, and Barbara Brown Taylor, Leaving Church, a Memoir of Faith, from the year 2006. For books this week, we have a guest book review. The title of the book is The Art of Reading the Bible, by Bertram Brockman. It's a book that was originally published in Norway in 1950, with a Norwegian reprint in nineteen. 19- In 2007. There's an English edition in 2009. The book is in paperback, 431 pages. The translation from Norwegian by Lynn Hippler, edited by Dag Ove Johansson. Once again, the title of the book, The Art of Reading the Bible, by Bertram Brockman. This is a guest book review by Ray Larson of the Stanford Linear Accelerator. Last month I celebrated my 75th birthday, and yesterday, exactly a month later, I finished reading The Art of Reading the Bible by B.D. Brockman, written in 1947 and published in Norway in 1950, and now, in 2009, translated into English. Brockman has been called by some Norway's greatest social reformer, and the art of reading the Bible illustrates how he comes by such a lofty title for a man who is basically unknown, dismissed, or forgotten outside of Norway. While I was being brought into the world in a tidy hospital in Viking, Alberta, Canada during the Great Depression, Former member of parliament, B.D. Brockman, was raising a strong voice of protest against the social upheaval in Europe, and in particular the fate of Norway as a pawn in the gigantic power struggle between communism under Lenin, fascism under Hitler and Mussolini, and capitalist democracy under the Western powers, led principally by England and the United States. But what made Brockman unique was that he was no ordinary talking head politician, He was a self-taught theologian who brought a powerful voice into the political discourse pointing out the huge gap between what Christ taught and what Norway, a so-called Christian nation since Christianity was declared state religion in the 1200s under Olaf, actually practiced. His sternest words were for the church and state long robes who ruled the nation. And even though his father was a very prominent Lutheran minister who wrote extensively on biblical themes, he claimed that his father, too, did not see quite the enormity of, quote, the light that illuminated the entire universe, end quote, that he himself had been privileged to see. Brockman permitted himself to be elected to Parliament, even though he never ran a campaign. He did so because people saw him as a leader, and his strong public speeches drew far greater crowds than any politician. But he rejected the leader role because he believed from Christ's words that by seeking kings and leaders, Christians actually abdicate their own creative, self-sufficient, and community-building potential and responsibilities. He saw both politicians and church leaders who were trained to constrain their faith to scholarly inquiry and aloofness, becoming puffed-up figureheads and blind guides gathering power to themselves that rightfully belongs to the community. And the people themselves aid and abet this process because they're told by the church that they're evil and sinful when in fact they're merely imperfect human beings a work in progress striving to live the life of a Christian under constraints placed by the state-church hierarchy that make all Christian effort one of personal moral behavior, not also of community behavior as Jesus would have it. In this way, the rewards of Christianity become so-called pie-in-the-sky hope for mere survival in this life and a better life in the hereafter where, in fact, the kingdom-like community life is available to Christians here and now in this world, in the community and permeating the total living organism that is humanity. This proper life denies boundaries and differences that are set up by the church state leaders. With our own dumb sheep-like support, our need for kings and idols among us who simply fleece the sheep make them work to uphold the so-called leaders through the tax system, and never deliver a single cent of return to the people. Brockman preached, without benefit of a seminary degree, that this system has kept us in a dream state of reality for 2,000 years, when in fact we should be living the reality state taught by Jesus, that his kingdom is not the dream state as the world claims, but the true reality. Modern society has it upside down. The Christ was rather an entertaining moral teacher and founder of a religion called Christianity. And his ideas of how to run a state were simply impractical. Brockman follows up the Sermon on the Mount words of Jesus to inform us that it is our entire church state system that is unreal, upside down, In stultifying to progress toward the kingdom that Christ plainly, with 100% accuracy and perfect knowledge of the whole, illumines for those who seek to see it. When after one of his speeches, in which he demolished the arguments of a supposedly learning politician, the person asked, well then, who will govern us? Brockman replied, God, of course. In other words, Brockman proclaimed his revelation of a community that he thought Norway could achieve, to be a beacon to the world through its example. He claims our churches are full of idols, stained glass, and liturgies that keep us comfortable in our hope for an afterlife, but do little to make progress toward a universal community under God in the here and now. In fact, Brockman stopped taking communion, he said, when he realized that it was a substitute for the blood sacrifice that we insist on holding on to, so that we can continue to authorize the state to kill in our name and then have our sins forgiven. What makes Brockman's writings so convincing is his absolute, unwavering belief in the revelation he's seen and his determination to illuminate us with as much of it as possible. He stayed in Norway when it was overrun by Nazi Germany and continued the dialogue, even with the occupiers. In 1937, he wrote a letter to Hitler prophesying his downfall if he persisted in his violent ways. He called Britain the most voracious of all nations because of its empire-building domination of half the world and in particular its desire to control Norway as a nation of tenant farmers. During the war, he criticized the puppet Quisling government, especially politicians who trumpeted their success in relief efforts, which in his mind the people could have managed better themselves. When the government returned to power, 99,000 Norwegians, including Brockman, were imprisoned for various and sundry unpatriotic activities. He had dared to pull the lion's tail, and he had to be punished. Inexplicably, he was released after only a few months, and later wrote a book about his trumped-up sham trial. For Christians, this is an important book. Brockman forces us to look at ourselves in the light of Jesus' words. It's not surprising that the world is not interested in hearing this message, and that during his lifetime the state and church dismissed, ignored, and sabotaged his work. It's taken 59 years for this particular book of Brockman's to reach an English-speaking audience. This is not his only book nor his last book, but part of a trilogy. First, the Bible and natural science. Second, the book under consideration, The Art of Reading the Bible. And then a third book, Christ in Society. Brockman, with his revelatory experiences, credentials of boldly speaking truth to power, deep understanding, eloquence, and desire to follow Christ in action, and not just hollow words, is, in the end, a commanding but ultimately humble figure. Christians who know their Bible will appreciate what Brockman has to say. However, will they be able to look at themselves through his eyes and still vote to go with the tide of the world's status quo of 30,000 deaths a day due to hunger? I think this provocative book is must-reading for any modern pilgrim seeking to follow the way of Jesus. The title of the book, The Art of Reading the Bible, by Norwegian Bertram Brockman. It's a book review by Ray Larson of the Stanford Linear Accelerator. For film this week, I review a a movie called Moon from 2009. In this science fiction thriller, Sam Bell has only two weeks left on his three-year contract to harvest helium-3 for Lunar Industries on the far side of the moon. He constitutes a crew of exactly one person, so he's desperately lonely and eager to go home. He talks to his plants, runs on the treadmill, whittles a replica of home out of wood, and lives for the video feeds from his beloved Tess back home. His only companion is the robot assistant, Gertie, who is voiced by Kevin Spacey and expresses himself with emoticons on the front. As the movie unfolds, Sam learns why he's a crew of one, or so he thought, and even more importantly, why one at a time. Going home isn't as simple as it first seemed. Lunar Industries boasts the cleanest energy available to Earthlings, and it praises its lone lunar employee. But harvesting helium-3 looks like strip mining. And strangely enough, there is in fact no live communication feed. This film isn't about a lonely astronaut, or even about evil corporations but what it means to be human. Human identity is embedded in the cosmic status quo. Or as Sam says, were people not computerized programs? Or at least that's what he wished. The title of the film is Moon from 2009. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by W. H. Auden, who lived from 1911 to 2004. It's a very short poem. It's called Epitaph on a Tyrant. Perfection of a kind was what he was after, and the poetry he invented was easy to understand. He knew human folly like the back of his hand, and was greatly interested in armies and fleets. When he laughed, respectable senators burst with laughter, and when he cried, the little children died in the streets. Epitaph on a Tyrant by W. H. Auden Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August 23, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.